Good morning. Welcome to everybody. Uh, welcome to those who may be joining us online this morning. It's good to be together, and as we've been doing over the past several weeks since the start of the year, I'd just like to spend some time praying on the front end and um, do that corporately. I just believe there's power in that kind of prayer. Um, we've been praying for other local churches uh, just to take our eyes beyond ourselves and actually find strength in the solidarity of knowing that we are not in this alone, that God's people are uh, all around us in other good, like-minded churches. Uh, so we've been praying for those churches uh, over the last couple of months. This morning, selfishly, I want uh, to ask you to join us in praying for um, our church and for uh, the, net, uh, the elders of the Terranova Network of Churches, uh, because we're going to be going away on retreat uh, this coming week. We do this once a year, and we typically will approach that time in some combination of social, spiritual, and strategic, uh, and, or some, yeah, some combination in there, not necessarily equal emphasis on all three. And this year, because uh, we are, there's a lot of new elders in our network, uh, we are actually going to focus more on the social and spiritual side of things. So within the last two years, we've doubled the number of elders we have across the Terranova network from five to ten. Many of those are lay elders or pastors. Um, and for those of you who are here or uh, who know Reuben Todd, he was ordained uh, this fall in November. And, uh, and then there was a couple of uh, elder, three elders in Troy in the last two years and one elder out in North Adams. So this is just a time we felt like we needed to shift the focus to getting to know one another as men who are... Uh, locking arms on, journey, uh, on this journey together of serving uh, these local churches. And so that's going to be this Thursday through Saturday. And uh, we look forward to that time being rich and fruitful um, in ultimately serving the churches uh, as we grow stronger together in our relationships. Um, we're going to spend that time actually going through what are called life maps, um, not a term I was familiar with before, maybe 10, 15 years ago when I came to Terra Nova, but basically sharing our stories in kind of a strategic way um, and, and really getting to deeply know one another in that time. Uh, so would you join me in, in prayer for the elders of the Terra Network for a moment here before we continue on and get into Hebrews? Father, I thank you for the chance for us to gather together as your people and to be called your people, to be called the church, the body of Christ, to be considered by you sons and daughters, a brother of Jesus, part of the family and household of God. And I pray that each of those names would sink more deeply into our hearts this morning for those who've been called by you, who are part of your house, who have a share with Christ in his eternal kingdom, that would be strengthened by the knowledge that no matter what our lives look like at this moment, no matter what we're going through, whether circumstantially or our own failures, that we have been made secure through your love in Christ by faith alone. Thank you for the privilege that it is to be an under-shepherd of Christ as an elder and pastor and on behalf of the elders and pastors in our network. And I'm thankful for that brotherhood. And I pray, Lord, that you would work mightily we pray you would work mightily in the lives of these you've called to be under shepherds this week so that we would be strengthened and encouraged, brought more deeply into a place of relationship with one another and you, that we would be honest and repentant and confess sin where we need to, that we would walk in the light together as brothers and so be worthy of imitation by your people upon our return. moved by your Holy Spirit to do things that are beyond all that we could ask or imagine for you to do in that time. For your name's sake, for your glory, 
for the joy of those men and for the good of your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Keep us in prayer if you would. Again, we'll be there Thursday afternoon through Saturday afternoon. So we're in Hebrews. We've been in Hebrews since January. It's a book in in the New Testament of your Bibles, a letter, actually probably a sermon that was uh, penned and then delivered to Rome to the church there. And we've been, uh, for the last couple of months, navigating our way through the first several chapters. We're in chapter 4 today. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. The, uh, some of the different uh, big ideas have been harder to arrive at easily. Uh, the theme of rest is the big idea from this passage, that we have a better rest in Jesus. And that was pretty easy to come up with. Uh, seven of the uh, words, seven of the time, of nine times in the New Testament that the word rest is used, is used in this chapter. So it's about rest. There's a lot that the author has to say here about rest. Maybe not in the way that we would typically think about it, but in, I think, a really profound way that I hope we can dig into well this morning. One thing I want to say at the outset is the author is not instructing or commanding his listeners here, his readers, to uh, commit to this weekly uh, day of Sabbath rest. Not that we shouldn't or that that isn't a good thing. Um, That's just not what he has in view. He has something more transcendent than a weekly Sabbath rest in view that he's going to be talking about today. However, the kind of rest that he's describing here today, I believe, and I believe Scripture gives us the picture, that that can be tasted, a foretaste of that can be enjoyed in the practice of Sabbath rest. And so actually we're going to be pausing starting next week for three weeks to do a deep dive into this idea of biblical Sabbath rest um, and what that looks like and talk about where in the Bible it talks about that, particularly in the Old Testament, the reasons why, the relevance to God's people today, and then some practical ways we can start going about that ourselves if we're not already, uh, haven't already integrated Sabbath rest into our, our rhythm of life in following Jesus. But here in Hebrews 4, the author's uh, exploration of this idea of rest is much larger than that. I'm kind of at a meta level looking down at this idea of rest. And so here would be our outline for today uh, to explore this idea. I don't really have slides today, so I'll say this twice in case you're a journaler and want to write this down. We're going to see first that the author says that this rest is still available. Secondly, we're going to talk about who is this rest for, who qualifies for this rest. Thirdly, what is the rest that's in view here. And then fourthly, what must we do to enter this rest? So the rest is still available. Praise God and amen. We'll understand why that was significant, especially to the original audience. Who is this rest for? Who qualifies for it? What exactly is this rest? And what must we do to enter this rest? So this is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. It'll be on on the screen behind me as well. Go ahead and open up to it in your Bibles if you would like to read it there, and then for all of those who are able, I'd ask that you'd stand for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 4, 1 through 13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. 
As it is said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray one more time. Father, please take your word and apply it deeply in our hearts, even as your word teaches us is its purpose here today. Please do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. We cannot understand. We cannot change. We cannot grow in our faith on our own. We are desperately in need and dependent on you for that. But we also cry out in faith for you to do that this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our verses for today, uh, chapter 4, 1 through 13, are really a counterbalance to what we looked at last week, that first generation of Israel wandering in the wilderness where they were denied entrance, denied the ability to enter into the promised land, which was God's rest for those people um, upon their deliverance from Egypt. And what's probably hard for us to appreciate, with the benefit of hindsight, with the benefit of stepping outside of uh, the immediate context of of the culture and the place that Israel was, even in the first century, this group of people whom the author of Hebrews was writing to, what's what may have been a surprise is that there was any rest still left to enter into. Many of these people may have assumed and associated the promised rest of God with the physical promised land. There was a problem, though, for them. Number one, if this church was, in fact, in Rome that the author of Hebrews is writing to, they were hundreds of miles away from that promised land. And number two, even if they were in that promised land, in Canaan, in, within the boundaries, the physical boundaries of that land, it was occupied by Rome anyway. So they would not have enjoyed the peace and the freedom that they would have associated with the rest that God had promised. So this probably came as a surprise some 1,400 years later to learn that this rest is still available and in, in an encouraging and hopeful way. So there's some clues here in our text that this is more than just about the physical land, this promised rest that God offered his people. Verses 6 to 7 tells us that since some failed to enter because of disobedience, God appoints a certain day to enter this rest, and then through his servant David, he says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So some 400 years after that original promise to those wilderness wanderers that God would deliver them into this place of rest, 
David says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And as long as it is today, respond to God. This rest is still available. Then in verse 8, we're told that for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on, presumably through David here, just quoted. Joshua, of course, was one of the two from uh, the nation of Israel that Moses sent as spies into the promised land when they were on the verge of entering in, and only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, came back with positive reports. Everybody else was afraid, fearful, thought that God had sent them into the wilderness and then into the promised land just to die by the hand of these occupants who were stronger than they were. So Joshua then was the one who entered into, led God's people into the promised land to that rest, but God spoke of another day later on. So here's what this all means. It means that the rest is more than the physical land. The rest that God had promised was more than just an end to their wanderings in the wilderness. It was more than uh, just peace with their, their physical enemies that surrounded them. Now, that may be obvious to you and I, but that would have been paradigm shifting to the early church, to these Jews who were in Rome. So we'll talk about what is this rest exactly that God still promises in a moment, but first, who is this rest for? And to see the answer to that, we need to reread verses 1 through 3, which, say, which says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. So who is this rest for? A couple of things were told here. The rest is for those who hear the good news, which came to us just as it came to them, the ones who were wandering in the wilderness. By the way, that word for good news there, same word in the Greek as gospel. So that gospel for them was God's promise he would deliver them from slavery in Egypt and bring them into this promised land of rest. That gospel for us, for the church in the first century and for us today is the promise that through Christ, God will deliver us from our sins and bring us into an eternal rest. So it was for those who hear the good news, but it wasn't just for those who heard What else did those who entered the rest do? It was those who listened as well, not just heard. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened, those who listened being Joshua and Caleb. See, the rest did not benefit uh, from the promise because unlike Joshua and Caleb, they didn't listen to God ultimately. Listen, anybody can hear the words of God. Anybody sitting here this morning can hear the Bible being taught, can hear the gospel. Anybody on the street we might meet, any relative or friend or neighbor we might share the gospel with can hear the gospel, but not everybody listens. In verse 6, we're told that those who formerly received the good news failed to enter. Why? Because of disobedience. So you can hear the gospel, you can hear the word of God, the promises of God, and yet be disobedient. Whereas listening implies obedience, or at least a heart posture that's ready to say yes to the Lord. You remember last week where I gave that illustration of the pastor who was kind of quietly praying while he sang, uh, at the, or while he was playing the piano, saying, yes, Lord, yes, over and over again, and finally just concluded and said, you know, we've given you our answer, now tell us what you want us to do. 
It was that heart posture that was eager and inclined towards being obedient. Sometimes that's what it can look like too. So this rest is for those who hear the good news of salvation through Christ and listen, which takes the form of, or we might also call that trust. And when the rubber hits the road, ultimately trust looks like obedience. Some of us have come up against difficult crossroads in life where you either have the choice before you to trust God or to go the way of the world, to trust yourself, to lean into the flesh, our own desires. And when we're at that crossroad, what trust looks like is trusting God, not ourselves. We enter this promised land, whatever it is God's calling us to, filled with these giants that are more powerful than us. Why? Because we trust that God is going to be faithful to his word and to what he said to us, that he would take care of us. Or put in language we might be more familiar with as Christians, we submit ourselves to Christ and his word even when it's painful and we don't fully understand. Faith is never easy. So, this rest is for those who hear the good news of salvation through Christ and listen. The author also includes this sobering admonition here, to fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That expression, that word, failing to reach, literally here means lacking something. And there's a couple other places that that word comes up in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels. Uh, At the wedding at Cana, when they ran out of the wine, they were lacking wine. They came up short. Uh, With the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, in many regards, very sincerely desiring to follow after him and asked what he must do. And Jesus said, one thing you lack. Go and sell all of your possessions, give them to the poor, and come and follow after me. He came up short. At that point, anyway, the hurdle was too high for him to clear, and he went away sad, it says. So there's an admonition to fear here that we don't come up short, that we don't find ourselves lacking in this journey of persevering and following after Jesus. Fear can be a a healthy thing or an unhealthy thing. So I don't know how that rubs you when you come across that admonition to fear. Fear can be an unhealthy thing when you become incapacitated by it, when you're worried or you're anxious about something in your life and and it's crippling to you. You can't move forward. You can't move in any direction. But fear can be a healthy thing when it compels us to action, when it motivates positive action in our life, when it energizes us, when it sobers us and we respond with obedience to it. Maybe a good analogy would be the fight or flight mechanism that God has given us when we come up against a form of danger and the adrenaline kicks in, and we fight or we flee in order to self-preserve. That's a healthy kind of fear. The admonition to fear here is meant to serve a similar purpose. It's for life, not for death. It's for good, not for evil, that he calls us to fear, because he's worried. He's worried for his audience that not all of them are truly following Jesus. So this rest is for those who hear the good news and who hear God's word and then entrust themselves to him fully. It doesn't mean, by the way, that we're going to get it perfectly right all the time. But here's what it looks and feels like. A lot of the time it feels like you have good reason not to trust God when he calls you something. Um, That you have a good reason not to follow through on what obedience or faithfulness or righteous living looks like. But you say yes anyway, even when you're not fully convinced and even when it doesn't feel good. And then that's the repeated pattern in your life. That's what it looks like to entrust yourself to him. Not perfectly, but that's what it feels like too. Because oftentimes, 
you have to actually say yes in faith because you have all the reasons in the world, all the justifications not to say yes or follow through on what God is calling you to. So if that's not the pattern for your life, there's a healthy place to fear that you may not enter this rest that God has said is still available. It's actually a form of grace then to us when God, through this author, poses these warnings. But if that's who is this rest for, then finally, what is this rest anyway that's in view here in Hebrews this morning? Four different things. First of all, it's God's rest. Let me unpack that for you. The author actually qualifies the kind of rest that's in view here by citing way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, when in verse 4 of our passage today, he quotes that verse and he says, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. So like this idea then that this is God's rest, it's obvious, but it's not. This was actually one of the most profound things and realizations for me this week when I was studying. Um, that the rest that's in view here is not something that God has specifically and specially created for us here over on the side. Instead, it's an invitation by God into the rest that he is already enjoying himself. Look at all the places in the text where this is so clear. In verse 1, it says, his rest. In verses 3 and 5, my rest, God being the one speaking. In verse 10, whoever has entered God's rest. This isn't a friend who's giving you a gift card to go to the local spa on your own. This is more like a friend inviting you to his beautiful country manor to enjoy the fruits of this beautiful place where he is already at enjoying that rest. It's God's rest that's in view here. The other thing to note is that since it's God that is being talked about here, the kind of rest that's in view is not from being exhausted or weary. God did not, he wasn't exhausted after he finished his work of creation. The rest in view here is from a place of completion, from a place of satisfaction. When God finished creation, he stepped back and what did he call it all? Very good. Yeah, he said good repeatedly, days one through six. And finally, when he was done, he stepped back and he said, this is very good. He was enjoying what he made. He was satisfied with what he had done. So that the, the rest in view here is more like the satisfaction that comes from completing building a home that now you're able to enjoy the fruits of your labor or maybe a, a painting that you've worked on for years and finally the final uh, brush stroke, you can put down that brush, step back and just enjoy the completion of this beautiful painting that you've made and others can as well. And also what we can say about this rest is that it's ongoing for God. It continued from that day on. Every other day in the Genesis account, we're told that there was morning and then there was evening, the whatever, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day. But then he rested on the seventh. And it doesn't say there was morning or evening, which implies that it's continued on ever since, that rest that God enter, entered into. So there are important implications for us who are invited into this rest that's still available, and that is that if God is offering us his rest, then entering his rest means we get to participate in it with him. At the very least, it means we get to be in God's presence as we enter this rest, and that's good news. That's encouraging to me. Second thing we can note, this rest is called a Sabbath rest. Um, what is it? Verse, sorry, I didn't write this down. Therefore, uh, next time I should. 
Thank you. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So that's how it's worded there. This word is actually a different word than has used anywhere else in the passage for rest. And it's not, like I said earlier on, a, a commanding of taking a literal Sabbath rest. The point of bringing Sabbath rest into view here is to talk about the particular kind of rest that it was. It actually harkens back to the Old Testament and the ways that Sabbaths were practiced in the Old Testament, sometimes as a day, sometimes as festivals. In the Old Testament, um, Sabbath rest was not just associated with stopping from work, it was at least that, but it was associated with celebration and festivity and enjoying and worshiping God. Most of you probably have favorite special occasions that you look forward to throughout the year, whether it be Christmas or Thanksgiving, these times of celebrating where you pause to celebrate God's good gifts in the company of those that you probably enjoy the most. The author here is saying that there remains a rest to be entered like those, but one that will be perpetual. It will be ongoing forever. And then he also tells us that it's, this rest is a rest from our works, So verse 10 says, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So there are different possibilities here as to what the works are that are in view. Some scholars and commentators would say, well, these are the bad works that we we do when we're relying upon ourselves to earn God's favor, um, or we're self-justifying through our work, that we get rest from those labors. It's possible, but here it says, as God did from his, we will rest from our works. So what kind of works were God resting from? Not bad works. God was resting at the end of creation from righteous works, the creative work of building his creation, which suggests then that the rest that's in view here is the works that we'll rest rest from that are righteous works that God's called us to. So it brings to mind a passage uh, like Ephesians 2.10, where it says the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, those kind of works. Or Revelation 14, 13, where the apostle John has had this vision, this heavenly vision, and here's what he sees, and he writes, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. I understand the rest the works that we're resting from here, to speak to those spirit-empowered works of obedience where we're cultivating the kingdom that God has called us to be participants in, righteous works, that like God, there will come a point one day where we can step back and enter God's rest, not from a place of exhaustion, though we may be, but from a place of satisfaction a place from completion. It's that day in the future at the judgment when we're in the presence of Jesus that we look forward to as Christians where he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, how satisfying that will be where we can receive his commendation for having given it our all, imperfect as it may have been, to work, to labor on his behalf for his kingdom to move forward here on earth. This is the rest I believe is in view here. From our works. Picture a microcosm if this helps you um, on a day-to-day basis, coming to the end of a day where you're working hard. Most of the time you're mindful of the Lord, you're doing it unto Him, you're working hard to provide for your family through your job, take care of your kids, use your talents and your gifts that God has given you for His glory. 
pour yourselves out sacrificially for those around you to encourage and strengthen and build them up. You get to the end of the day, you sit down. This is a good day, right? Not every day, but you sit down around the family dinner table and you just breathe out this sigh of satisfaction. Man, it's a blessing to have been used by God today, to have served him so much better than if I'd tried to serve myself selfishly. And you just enjoy a good meal in the company with those that you love the most. Maybe on microcosm, that's a little bit like what it means to be able to work from, rest from our works, uh, but just multiply that by an infinite amount and for eternity. So it's a rest from our works. Finally, more of a question than a, than a, a, a characteristic, although I suppose it's that too. Is this rest that's in view here a present rest that we enjoy right now, or is this a future rest that we look forward to? And I think this is one of those that you can answer yes to. In other words, that it's a both and that's in view here. Although some will say, again, commentators, that the rest that's in view here is exclusively future. And they'll point to verses 9 and 10 that speak from the idea of resting from our, our works, um, which ultimately we know will only be future because we're called to continue to work, righteous for, do righteous works now for God. Or verse 11, which tells us to strive to enter this rest, well, that's implying that it's something future that we're striving for. However, others believe we enter this rest immediately upon salvation, and examples from our passage are the fact that there are tenses here in which uh, the verb to rest indicates we've already entered this thing if we believe in Jesus. Verse 3, for we, have, uh, for we who have believed enter that rest. Verse 10, for whoever has entered already God's rest. And then there are still others who would say, therefore, that this is an an example of an already and a not yet, a now and a future that we experience as Christians, which I ascribe to, um, if for no other reason, uh, because this is the example we see so much throughout the New Testament, right? Think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, where he says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. There are degrees of clarity with which we'll see and understand Jesus in this life versus an eternity, in which we experience God in this life versus an eternity. But the reality is, the picture the New Testament paints, anecdotally the life we live as Christians, is that we don't wait until we die to start experiencing the fruit of being in God's presence. We, we experience that in part now, and we look forward to experiencing it fully in eternity with him. So this rest, I believe, is both a now and a not yet, something we already get a taste of and we look forward to fully in the future. Maybe a good earthly metaphor for this would be the difference between engagement and marriage. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Reuben always says that all metaphors end up falling apart at some point. This is probably one of those. But when you're engaged, there's so much that you experience that is like marriage. Like You, you are more committed to this person than you are anyone else. Um, when it comes to a covenant-type commitment, you uh, enjoy a, a degree of intimacy with them, not fully, but in terms of emotionally, you've gotten to know this person probably better than most other people. You have familial-like relationships with your in-laws, even if they're not technically family yet. You don't have the, you know, the, the legal paperwork signed yet, but there's so much that you experience in engagement um, that, uh, that is like marriage, and yet marriage is something different, Right? where it's the full consummation of the fruits and enjoyment of intimacy with that person and security and knowing that this person is committed covenantally to you. Um, 
that may be a little bit like the now and the not yet of experiencing and tasting this rest in part, but we look forward to something that's so much fuller um, in eternity. So then finally, how do we enter this rest? Verse 11, this is where we'll kind of wrap up. We'll look at verses 11 through 13. The author says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. But you also have verse 3, which says, for we who have believed enter that rest. So once again, herein lies that tension. You've got those who have believed, who've listened, evidenced by a soft heart and obedience. They've already entered this rest, but yet there's an ultimate rest that's still to come. And so we strive to enter that rest. By the way, striving here, it means working hard. It means doing your best. It implies strenuous effort. And it almost seems contradictory. How can we have rest from our works but then be striving to enter this rest? Well, two things here, and we've kind of already talked about this one. But first, because we're still called to be active in those good, righteous works that God has planned for us to do. There's still kingdom work to be done. That's one of the ways in which we strive to enter that rest. We continue on in those good works God's called us to. But secondly, remember the broader context that we've encountered so frequently already of these warnings that the author gives, that it's by holding firm our confidence to the end that actually vindicates what's been true all along that we are Christ's house, that we do have a share with Christ in his eternal kingdom, that we have already entered this rest in part. So striving here isn't about earning our salvation. It's about confirming our salvation, evidenced by uh, things that we, we, we see and we know, that God has saved us, that God has given us a new heart and new desires that he's given us power to conquer sin in our lives, given us love for those who are difficult love, given us a desire to do the kind of kingdom work that has eternal consequences, all of which, if we don't see those evidences here in Hebrews, show up elsewhere in the New Testament. So in short, striving is just another way of the author calling us here to persevere in obedience, which is something that we've already talked about over the past few weeks. So how do we persevere in obedience? We don't have to reinvent the wheel here. Remember that while we're only four chapters in, this was a sermon that was probably read over an hour. And immediately in hindsight, immediately in the rear view, we have several things that the author has given us as ways to strive to enter this rest. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Context there being the message of salvation, the good news of the gospel. That isn't just something that we apply to ourselves once when God saves us, we continue to live in light of this truth that we are broken people, sinners in need of a Savior. Yes, God has saved us once for all, but we continue to be humbled and live in light of what he's done for us. Or if we don't, we do so at our own peril, and we become prideful, and at some point we walk away from Jesus. So we must pay closer attention to what we've heard. Chapter 3, verse 1, we consider Jesus, right? We, in a way in which we are are holding on to him with white knuckles. We, we, we want to continue to look at Jesus, to talk about Jesus, to speak to others about Jesus we're called to. Chapter 3, verse 13, we exhort one another every day. That's that communal responsibility that last week we spent time talking about, right? All of those are forms of striving to enter this rest. But what are all of those informed by? Verse 12, informed by God's word. 
It's, this is an interesting verse. It's one that probably many of us who've grown up in the church have memorized, but often is understood out of context. But what it says is, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the verse that immediately follows the author's call to strive to enter this rest. And so a part of how we strive to enter this rest is by allowing God's word to do the work that it was meant in our life and in each other's lives. The sword here is something that certainly can be used as an instrument of death. In fact, in two other places in Hebrews, especially in chapter 11, it's used this way, talking in the context there about the people of faith, some of who've died by the sword or barely escaped to the edge of the sword, so it's being used in a destructive manner there. What about here? Well, we're told that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, the Word of God. It doesn't say it is a two-edged sword. It says it's sharper than a two-edged sword. Now, it wouldn't be wrong to call the Word of God a sword. That's how the Apostle Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 6. And there's a famous preacher who said over and over again, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And the primary way to do that is through the Word of God. So it's it's not wrong to think about it that way. But here, the author isn't even necessarily saying that the Word of God is a sword. He says it's sharper than a two-edged sword. He goes on to say, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. So this, this Word of God, it's a precision instrument. It's more like a scalpel in the hands of a skilled surgeon than a blunt instrument meant to inflict lethal trauma upon somebody. If it can parse out between joint and of marrow and of soul and of spirit. And then thirdly, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So as this instrument of God penetrates deeply with precision, it then exposes and reveals what's wrong and what's diseased and what's broken at a heart level. So in short, and if I was to do a sermon just on these three verses, it would have been titled this, The Word of God Reveals Us to Heal Us. That's its purpose here. And by the way, the author probably had in mind as he wrote these words what he had just written about in chapter 3, 7 to 19 last week, that first generation of wilderness wanderers. Remember the quote from Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Here's an example of God speaking. They heard his voice, God's word going forth, and what effect did it have? It revealed the fact that they had a hard heart that was in need of surgery, repentance, But instead of repenting, instead of trusting God, they actually doubled down on their hardness of heart and their rebellion against him. So what he's saying here is that the word of God is the truth. One way or another, it's going to reveal us, whether we let it now or whether we do one day at the final judgment. In fact, that's the idea of verse 13, which says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give an account. And here's the thing. It is the grace of God that his word would do this work of revealing us now, rather than us having to wait until the judgment when it's too late. The idea of striving here, of letting God's word reveal our hearts in order to heal, is what's going on here. And one thing I want to say here is, as Christians, and this is so true even of myself, sometimes I will approach God's Word in order to study and examine it. But I think the call here in verse 12 
is to allow God's word to study and examine our hearts. That's a very different posture with which we approach God's word. Now, do we need to be afraid of what it reveals? Yes and no. If we are resisting God, if we are in rebellion against him, if we have a hard heart, then it already condemns us. Many are familiar with John 3.16. Many are not familiar with the two verses that come after that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We condemn ourselves by our unbelief. God is not eager to condemn. Our unbelief is what condemns us. Over and over again, the example we see of God in the scriptures is that he is patient. He's patient towards sinners, that he does not delight in the death of the wicked. But there is a point, as we talked about last week, of no return. But for believers, there is no fear, no need to fear what, God, what God's word might reveal. Why? Because of what he's already done for us on the cross. God has already shown you on the cross how he feels about you. You don't have to be afraid of what his word reveals to you. God's word reveals you in order to heal you, son, daughter of the Most High God. When something broken and sinful is exposed in your life, that's because God is about the work of a skillful, loving physician to reveal that so that he can heal you. And it may be painful. Who of us has not experienced, if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, the light of his word shining into our heart and revealing some darkness, and it calls us either to repentance, change something, it calls us to confession. All those things can be really painful, excruciatingly so sometimes. But ultimately, what does it do? It brings life. It brings joy of a different kind than we had before we allowed God's word to shine into the hearts of our lives. And the greatest example, perhaps, of this, of the idea of sin, sin being revealed, the the impact of sin bringing pain but ultimately leading to life, we see on replay each week as we take communion. Jesus stepped in to take on the full consequences of our sin so that instead of having to stand in fear of God's judgment, we are now counted as sons and daughters of God loved by him, who by his word and his spirit is seeking to make us into the image of his son. We don't have to fear the word of God revealing um, the dark places in our heart. We actually can approach knowing that God is a loving God, a skilled physician, wanting to make us more into the image of his son. So I want to encourage you this week, moving forward in your walk with Jesus, there are going to be times when God's word reveals painful things, difficult things, things you want to run away and hide from and not admit to and expose. And it will be painful. But I want you to remember in those moments the pain that Jesus endured and suffered on your behalf to spare you from God's judgment And that way, maybe you can see the pain of those moments where God's word's revealing your heart to be instead that of a loving God rather than the judgmental one. He wants to heal you, and he wants to make you into the image of his son. Let's pray that he would do that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for 
caring enough about us not to leave us to our broken selves. But in your humility, as we talked about early on in Hebrews, leaving the heavens, entering into the mess of this world that we have created and dying on our behalf so that we can be made whole and healed and be reunited with you. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would not seek uh, this world as as an end in and of itself to the rest that we desire, but would you take your word and what it's taught us this morning and paint a compelling, glorious, heavenly, eternal picture of rest that would cause us to want to strive to enter that rest, come what may, on this side of eternity, whatever cost that comes at. And oh Lord, some of us operate um, maybe rightfully from a place of fear in these moments because we know that we've been walking in rebellion against you by and large is characteristic of our journey of quote-unquote faith. I pray that that fear wouldn't drive those away from you, but oh Lord, would this be the moment by your Spirit's help and power that they would actually see that you are a loving God waiting with arms wide open to take them in and embrace them and to cover their shame by the blood of your Son on the cross. And Lord, for those of us who are followers of yours, believers, sons and daughters here, who nonetheless operate in fear because we've allowed the enemy to be able to fan into flame those kinds of lies in our life, I pray that as their struggles bubble up in surface as sin bubbles up in surfaces. Oh Lord, show them that you are a skillful, loving physician seeking to actually bring deliverance, healing, and wholeness in those areas out of love and not to expose them for the sake of shaming them or condemning them. Lord, you proved that much to us on the cross. As we look to what Jesus did, you already showed us what you feel about us, how you feel about us. May that be what resonates in the hearts of those who doubt this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.